First of all, for Anthea, she's not here this morning and she wanted me to apologise on her behalf. We've had an interesting week uh, with no less than three family birthdays in it. Uh, yesterday evening, my son-in-law had his uh, 40th birthday celebration, which is a big one. It's not even his birthday yet, but he had it last night and we had all sorts of children to uh, put up overnight, household, and the last consignment of kids was still waiting to be shipped off uh, when I left this morning, so Auntie's still dealing with that. Sorry about that. And today, it's my turn, so hey, happy birthday to me. But uh, that will mean... <laughs> That means that uh, I'm not going to hang out until the last person's out of the hall this morning because I have to get back for, for my birthday lunch and stuff like that. So, anyway, there we are. Let's read some verses, shall we, from Romans chapter 9 to start with. Um, Romans chapter 9 uh, is the next chapter we have to deal with. We dealt with the end of chapter 8 last time, and this opens a whole new section in the book. Now, again, it's a fairly long and involved chapter, so we'll read it in bits. So let's just read the first few verses, shall we, uh, from chapter 9 and verse 1. Here we go. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sons. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. There's the patriarchs, and from them is traced the, the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It's not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants, are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, the Old Testament says. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated, at the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Hmm. That's tricky stuff, isn't it? I was just thinking this morning that failure can be funny. I came across this book, The Book of Heroic Failures, early in the 1980s when it had just come out. I remember it was the, the end of a mission week we were doing in Youth for Christ. I was in charge of the training department in those days. I had about 11 uh, new trainee evangelists under me, and we all went to all of the schools in St. Helens in Lancashire, visited for a week, and at the end of the week we were absolutely exhausted. And on the last afternoon I happened to find this book in W. H. Smith's, and I just brought it back and started reading it. I couldn't stop laughing. And people said, what are you laughing at? So I read them a bit from the book and said, <laughs> read us some more, read us some more. And I will never forget, you know, 12, 13 uh, well-known evangelists, they are now anyhow, uh, just rolling on the floor, laughing uncontrollably. And part of it was that we were tired, you know, after a week's work, and, and they were just hysterical. But uh, partly it was the book. Um, that's, that's the book there, The Book of Heroic Failures, the official handbook of the Not Terribly Good Club of Great Britain. And it's just full of things that people got wrong. This is the Royal Bible of Scotland, for instance, in Rothsey on the Isle of Bute in Scotland. And uh, that appears under the worst bank robbers. 
In August 1975, three men were on their way in to rob the Royal Bank of Scotland at Rothsey when they got stuck in the revolving doors. <laughs> they had to be helped free by the staff, and after thanking everyone, sheepishly left the building. A few minutes later, they returned and announced their intention of robbing the bank, but none of the staff believed them. When at first they demanded £5,000, the head cashier laughed at them to convince it was a practical joke. Considerably disheartened by this, the gang leader reduced his demand first to £5,000, then to £50, and ultimately to 50 pence. By this stage, the cashier could barely control herself for laughter. Then one of the men jumped over the counter and fell awkwardly on the floor, clutching at his ankle. The other two made their getaway but got trapped in the revolving doors for a second time, <laughs> desperately pushing the wrong way. And the whole book's just full of stories like that. It's, 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 it's really very funny. I mean, my favourite one of the lot, I think, is the worst tourist. The least successful tourist on record is Mr. Nicholas Scotty of San Francisco. In 1977, he flew from America to his native Italy to visit relatives. En route, the plane made a one-hour fuel stop at Kennedy Airport. Thinking he had arrived, Mr. Scotty got out and spent two days in New York believing he was in Rome. <laughs> when his nephews were not there to meet him, Mr. Scotty assumed they had been delayed in the heavy Roman traffic mentioned in their letters. While tracking down their address, the great traveller could not help noticing that modernisation had brushed aside most of the ancient city's landmarks. He also noticed that many people spoke English with a distinct American accent. However, he just assumed that Americans got everywhere. Furthermore, he assumed it was for their benefit that so many street signs were written in English. Mr. Scotty spoke very little English himself and next asked the policeman in Italian the way to the bus depot. As chance would have it, the policeman came from Naples and replied fluently in the same tongue. After 12 hours travelling around on a bus, the driver handed him over to a second policeman. There followed a brief argument in which Mr. Scotty expressed amazement at the Rome police force employing someone who did not speak his own language. <laughs> Scotty's brilliance is seen in the fact that even when told he was in New York, he refused to believe it. To get him on a plane back to San Francisco, he was raced to the airport in a police car with sirens screaming. See, he said Scotty to his interpreter, I know I'm in Italy, that's how they drive. <laughs> Crazy. And failure can be funny, but the book of heroic failures, but failure can also be tragic. This is Captain Robert Falcon Scott's expedition to the South Pole, the Terra Nova expedition. And within six months, five of those people, including Scott in the middle there, would have lost their lives in the Antarctic snows. Tremendous heroism, but also tremendous failure. They got to the South Pole to find that Amundsen and the Norwegian explorer had beaten them to it, and they didn't get back alive. And this is a passage about failure. Last week we were talking about Romans 8, and it ends on that triumphant note. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can take it away from that. Jesus is victorious. We are more than conquerors in him. It's fantastic. And then you read... I speak the truth and I'm not lying. I have great sorrow and anguish in my heart. Tremendous difference in tone, isn't there? And many people have said that through the past, oh, well, this is clearly because this bit has been cobbled together. It's been stuck into the, 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 the letter. It doesn't really belong here. So they've changed the words of Paul. No, it's not true. We now know this is part of the letter. Certainly, you could take chapters 9 to 11 out of the epistle, and you still go on reading it. You can go straight from the end of chapter 8 to chapter 12 and verse 1, and it makes perfect sense. 
So a lot of people say, well, why have you got these three chapters? They're all about Jews and what God's done in the past and stuff like that. And you might have seen the, the title for this morning, What Does God Think of the Jews? And well, what's that got to do with me? I'm not Jewish. It doesn't really matter to me too much. Why take three chapters out of this incredibly important letter just to talk about God and Jews and Gentiles and stuff like that? Well, I think it's, it's, it's a very important bit. This is where we were last week. We talked about where we're going soon, this fantastic vision that God has got of the, the, the future he's got lined up for us. We talked about where we are now as well, with the Holy Spirit helping us to pray effectively, the Father working out his plan right all the way through glorification. When we reach that glory one of these days and the, the, the fact that Jesus is now our elder brother and we're starting to look like him because the family nature is expressing who we are. It's tremendously exciting stuff. We talked to you about what it all means. We can't be destroyed militarily. Nobody can overcome us. We can't be destroyed materially. Nothing can be taken away from us. God meets all of our needs in Jesus. We can't be destroyed morally. Nobody can stand up and say, you must be condemned because Jesus has died for us. So nobody can defend us. Nobody can deprive us. Nobody can denounce us. All of that stuff. And now we reach a very different section. I remember this slide. We saw, we saw this a long time ago, right back at the start. This is what actually happens in the book of Romans. And this is where we've been up until now. Chapters 1 to 4, we've been talking about the world's problem and God's answer to it. The fact that we are in a mess that only God, through the sacrifice of Jesus, can get us out of. And that is the point of the next, next section, 5 to 8, has been all about how God's answer works and what it does. And it ends with that tremendous burst of glory in chapter 8. Fantastic stuff. But now we've got to 9 to, 11, 9 to 11. And in this section, God's talking about, well, what about the Jews? Has God abandoned his ancient people? How do they fit into this whole thing? And it was a big question when Paul wrote this letter. Because you can imagine Phoebe, who brought the letter to Rome, coming with it, sitting down with one of the little house churches in Rome and reading it out, reaching the start of chapter 9, and then somebody clearing his throat saying, <coughs> well, excuse me, Phoebe, this is okay, this sounds fine, it sounds great, but actually look around you, because lots of Jewish people are not acknowledging the gospel. They don't believe in Jesus yet. Surely if this was such good news, they'd all be going for it, wouldn't they? So what's going on? Has God's plan failed? And the point of 9 to 11 is to answer that and say, no, no, God is not a heroic failure. What God planned is working, and we'll just tell you why. And then later on in the autumn, we'll be talking about chapters 12 to 16, which is about here's how we need to spend our lives on earth as a result of all of this. But 9 to 11, which we're just starting on this morning, is a really, really important part of the book, and we need to see that. I think it's three things, basically. First of all, God's plan has not failed. That's the point of the verses we've read so far. Verses 6 to 13 especially focus on that. Later on, we'll, see, we'll read a bit more, and that's about God's decisions not being unfair. And then finally, at the end of the chapter, that God's ways can't be examined. We don't have the ability. We don't have the knowledge. We don't have the, the, the capacity to look at God and say, that's the way you should be doing it. You shouldn't be doing it like that. You should be doing it like this. God's ways can't be examined because we just don't have the power to suggest things to him. We don't understand the way he does things to start with. Anyway, before we get into that, there's something else we need to take on. This is quite a difficult chapter in some ways, and there's a very difficult idea we have to get hold of to start with, or none of it will fit into place. Let me tell you what that idea is. Asking a simple question. What happens when we become a Christian? Because the Bible says two things that at first seem contradictory to one another. Here's one of them. This is from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
And Paul's talking about the fact that his job is to persuade people to listen to the good news and think about becoming a Christian. Since then, he says, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. And he committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. What he's saying there quite clearly is, it's down to people, isn't it? We implore them, we beg them, we ask them to, to make up their mind themselves. Be reconciled to God. We try to persuade them that that's the smartest and brightest thing they can do with the one human life. So it's down to them. You decide. Otherwise, there'll be no point in people spending their time appealing to people. Why would Stevie and other evangelists be going around saying, listen to the gospel, if it were not for the fact that they could actually make a decision? If they couldn't make a decision for themselves, then there'd be no point. But there's another emphasis in the Bible as well, and it seems to be a contradiction to start with, which is that God chooses. Here, for example, is a from Ephesians chapter 1. In him we were also chosen. I thought we chose. You choose, yep, you choose, but he has already chosen you. Uh, how does that work? Having been predestined, chosen out beforehand, according to the plan of him who worked through everything in conformity with the purpose of his, his will. Everything that gets worked out, everything in the universe, is in conformity with the will of God. He chooses. Yep, we're having this and not that. So is it you that chooses? Or is it God that, God that chooses? That's what you call an antinomy. Two things that don't seem to match up because you don't have the knowledge to fit them together. I came down the road this morning in something that looked a bit like that. Antinomy. Something we don't understand because we don't have the power to see it fully. I came down the road this morning in something like that. At least it looks like that under the car. It doesn't look quite like that because this is not exactly a Ford Fiesta we're looking at here. But it's the same sort of basic idea. You've got a drive shaft that runs underneath the car and connects the engine at the front to the wheels at the back so that the wheels go round. The trouble is, when you look at the way it works, you might be quite baffled. I mean, there's the car seen from above, okay, there's the engine in front, and so hopefully most of the time you want to go forward like that. And to do that, as you know, those wheels have got to go round like that. The trouble is, when you look at the drive shaft, it's going the opposite way, it's going like that. So you should be driving to the side, one way or another. And instead you go forward. It's not like that when it gets to the back axle. It's like that. How does that work? Well, it's because of that thing at the back that's called a differential. <laughs> that switches the motion from that way to that way. And so the car goes forward instead of going sideways. Oh, sorry, I just crashed into a bus. Yeah, it doesn't do that. It goes the way you want it to go because there is something in there. And you might think, if you don't know much about how it works, how about, how does that kind of motion actually put you in that sort of direction? It seems to be going against itself, doesn't it? It doesn't fit. It's illogical. It just shouldn't work. But it does work. It's an antinomy because you don't know what's going on. And uh, the great example that people often use of this is the example of light in physics. Now, Isaac Newton, that's him on the left up there, uh, in the, at the start of the 18th century said, it's obvious that light is made up of particles. And for some scientific theories... That's, that's, that's necessary. And if you look at uh, some of the things there, uh, they work if light is particles. But there are certain things you would expect that don't work that way. And so at the start of the 19th century, and a scientist called Thomas Young came along and said, no, 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 light is actually waves. And again, for many theories, it works that way. But not for all of them. So sometimes light appears to be particles, and sometimes light appears to be waves. It can't be both. 
But scientists have just got to work with that because quantum physics helps to explain it, I'm, I'm told. I don't understand anything about quantum physics. Don't ask me afterwards, please. But, you know, uh, quantum physics, I'm told, helps to explain it. But it's still a mystery in some cases. And for different theories, for different experiments, scientists need to treat light as particles one mo moment and then as waves the next. And we don't know quite how the two things match up, but we know that both things are true in some kind of a way. Very helpful when you're paying the bills. This guy's saying, once and for all, I want to know what I'm paying for. When the electric company tells me whether the light is a wave or a particle, I'll write my check. <laughs> well, I don't I'll get out of paying the bill that way. Sometimes you just have to accept that both things are true. So God chooses you, and you choose God. The two things are equally true. Now, with that in mind, <laughs> let's get back to those three things we were looking at. God's plan hasn't failed. God's decisions aren't unfair. God's ways can't be examined. Let's look at both. First of all, God's plan hasn't failed. This is where, in the verses we've read, uh, Paul says, well, look at the way it worked in the Old Testament. God chose a man called Abraham and his wife Sarah to be the start of a new recovery for the world. The world had gone away from God, people had turned their back on him, and God chose one man and one family through whom to turn that around. And this man's children were going to become a tribe, were going to become a nation, were going to fill the earth to the point where people would look at them, one of the nations of the earth, and say, they are special, they are different, they are living in a different way. They have a relationship with God which we're all supposed to have. And so through that one nation, God's glory would spread to the ends of the earth and you reach the point where, as the prophets say, you know, men from the nations will grab hold of the robe of a Jew who's going up to worship God in the temple and say, you're going to worship God, aren't you? Please take us with you. And the ends of the earth will start to worship God because of what God has done through choosing this special people. But Paul says here, you know, not everybody who was a child of Abraham was part of the promise. He had two sons, didn't he? He had Isaac, who was Sarah's son, and he had Ishmael as well. When they got fed up waiting for Isaac to come along, and uh, Sarah said to Abraham, okay, you can't have children through me, go and have one through my servant. And Ishmael wasn't part of the promise. And uh, Paul says, there you are, you see. God chooses. He doesn't just take everybody who's biologically born in that line. And you might say, well, yes, okay, but Isaac was Sarah's son. Ishmael was somebody who shouldn't have happened anyway. So, you know, it's obvious why he's been like Well, Paul says, look at the next generation. Look at Esau and Jacob. Even before those twins were born, uh, God sent his mother a prophecy when they were giving her a hard time inside her tummy and said, you know, this is a sign that the, the older will serve the younger. I took great delight in introducing one of my twin grandchildren to that verse last night. Because Jess always says, well, I was born first, three minutes before Ella, so I'm the elder sister. So I showed her that verse about the elder serving the younger, and she was not best pleased. <laughs> However, um, this is what God says. And you might think, poor old Esau, he's out of it. That's terrible. Why is he not part of the whole deal? And it's because God has chosen Jacob. And so what Paul is saying here is, look, if you're worried because lots of the Jewish people to whom the gospel has come first are not listening to the gospel, don't worry about it. Because God knows who he has chosen. And I go on traveling all across the ancient world, shipwrecked, thrown in prison, beaten with stripes, all that stuff, so that I can tell as many people as possible, I don't know who God's chosen and who's not. And I don't know who will respond and who won't, but I've got to tell everybody and give them a chance. Because two things are true at the same time. God has chosen people out there, but also they have to choose for themselves. And so I want both of those things to happen simultaneously. And God's plan hasn't failed. 
It's just that God chooses some and not others. Okay, so we move on to the second thing. God's decisions aren't unfair. Here's where we need to read a few more verses, so let's do that, shall we? Um, This is verse uh, 14. What then shall we say, says Paul, is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You might notice, by the way, that there are more Old Testament quotations in Romans chapter 9 than there are anywhere else in any of the writings of Paul. (laughs) And that's because he's determined to prove from Scripture that the gospel is the truth. It's still on the right track. God has not failed. And God's decisions are not unfair because God is still a God of incredible mercy. And we can't judge who he's merciful to and who he's not. He does not, therefore, depend on man's desire. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that uh, I, I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to, have, wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? You know, if you can't resist his will, if you're Pharaoh and you're born to be a vessel of wrath, and if you're the Apostle Paul and you're born to be a great apostle, that's God's choice and not yours, isn't it? That's not fair. Aye, but remember the other side of the thing. God chooses, but we also choose. And Paul says, if looking at the way that God chooses, who are you all my to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the pot have the right to make of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy when he prepared an advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles? Paul's saying, look, you can't second-guess God. You don't know why he chooses one and not another. You don't know how this whole thing works. Because you just don't have the equipment to solve what's going on here. But God's decisions ultimately aren't unfair. We quoted from the message last week. Do you remember that, that uh, 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 modern translation which helps to clarify a lot of things? And it's not too bad either. On this passage, what it says is this. Is that grounds for complaining that God is unfair? Not so fast, please. God told Moses, I'm in charge of mercy. I'm in charge of compassion. Compassion doesn't originate in our bleeding hearts or moral sweat. But in God's mercy, God has the first word, initiating the action in which we play our part, for better or worse. Are you going to object? So how can God blame us for anything since he's in charge of everything? If the big decisions are already made, what say do we have in it? But what Paul is saying is, look, you're looking at one side of this antinomy, this seeming contradiction. You're looking, oh, God's chosen people, has he? Well, that's all there is to it. You're not looking at the other side, that we choose for ourselves whether we stand under the wrath of God by turning our back on him or whether we accept his grace and his mercy into our lives and become part of God's people. Um, It's often been said that when you walk into the kingdom of heaven, you see above the door, whosoever will, anybody who wants to come into God's mercy. But when you get there and you look back at the doorway, you see above the doorway, chosen by God. (laughs) The two things are true. They both belong together. And so, says Paul, God's ways can't be examined. 
We can't talk about what God's done and say, that's wrong, that's not the way I would have done it. He can't really love people if he does and so on. We need to remember that God's emotions don't work in the same way as ours. This is difficult stuff this morning. We're going to throw one more difficulty at you. His emotions are different from ours. For example, the Bible talks a lot about God's wrath, God's anger. In fact, there are more references to the anger of God than the love of God in the Bible, which would be news to a lot of people. And God is an angry God. Now, that worries some Christians. And, you know, they get this picture in their mind of God throwing all of his toys out of his pram. Oh, I'm going to kill somebody. I'm going to send a thunderbolt. I hate these humans. As if God is constantly jealous and angry and horrible and spiteful and vindictive. It's not like that. That's what anger can be like in human beings. And when we get angry, first of all, in humans, wrath usually means losing the plot. God never loses the plot. God is always in charge of himself as well as everything else that's going on. And often anger comes because we are frustrated. We can't do anything about it. You know, uh, the shopkeeper refuses to give you any change and says, that was a five-pound note you, uh, you gave me. No, it was a 20-pound note and you owe me 15 pounds. And it just nothing you can do. It says, hey, Sonny, off you go before I call the police. Please. And that's because you can do nothing in that situation whatsoever, isn't it? God is never frustrated. God it never feels wounded pride the way that we do. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can do whatever he wants. So frustration, which drives our anger, is something that belongs to God. And in humans too, wrath and anger usually leads to cruel behavior. We do something nasty to somebody else. Yeah, it might just be kicking your little sister. <laughs> it might be saying something cutting that cuts people down to size. Or it might be actually dotting the one between the eyes. You know, it can be all sorts of things. But that's how we feel when we get angry. We want to hurt somebody. We want to do the thing. Now, God's not like that. God's wrath, remember, is something which people choose for themselves. It's not something that he inflicts on them because he doesn't like them very much. It's something that we choose to stand under for ourselves. And so the best way you can describe God's wrath is to say God's wrath is a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. It's just his consistent state. God doesn't suddenly flare up and get angry. He's like that towards what's evil all the time. He hates what oppresses people, what disfigures his creation, what cuts people down to what they ought to be, what dis disfigures their lives and prevents their potential from emerging. God hates all of that stuff, and he hates it with a consistent point of view. That's what it means by talking about God's wrath. Now, when you get to God's love, it's pretty much the same thing. His love is not the same as ours. Because you know what human love is like. Love usually means an impulsive attraction based on preferences or prejudices or circumstances. Right? We suddenly fall in love with people. You look across Great Parks Chapel and you see somebody sitting at the other end of the row who suddenly looks absolutely wonderful. Think, oh, yes, please. Something inside you goes, hmm. And you think, oh, I like a bit of that. And so you start talking to the person concerned. They seem to feel like that. And they take you home for tea, and that's absolutely wonderful. And at tea time, you meet their younger sister, and you think, oh. <laughs> you know, we can be impulsive, and, 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 and it comes out of nowhere, doesn't it, sometimes? Human affections are very, very fickle in lots of ways, but God is entirely just in all of his ways. So he doesn't sort of suddenly fall in love and fall out of love. His love is different. And humans, too, love can lead to foolish, irrational, or immoral behavior. Yes, I know I have a wife and 17 kids, but I've fallen in love with a girl at work. 
And so you often do something stupid. And we do that, don't we? Driven by love. And if you read too much Dr. Zhivago and stuff like that, you think love is the excuse for anything. We can do whatever we, we, we like as long as we love that other person. God's love is not like that. It's constant and it's righteous. And so in God, love is, says this theologian, an attitude freely chosen and firmly fixed. Who is this guy? Well, this is J.I. Packer, who died a couple of years ago, one of the greatest of British theologians, I think. And this is what he said about the love of God. The love of God, who is spirit, is no fitful, fluctuating thing as human love is it. Nor is it a mere impotent longing for things that may never be. It is rather a spontaneous determination of God's whole being in an attitude of benevolence and benefaction, an attitude freely chosen and firmly fixed. There are no inconstancies or vicissitudes in the love of the Almighty God who is spirit. His love is as strong as death. Now that's very different from human love, isn't it? So when the Bible talks about the anger of God and the love of God, you've got to remember we're talking about a consistent attitude that God always has to people. So we've got to ask the question, okay, well, if it's fair enough then for God to choose some people as vessels of destruction, as Paul puts it there, vessels of wrath, and other people as vessels for his love, does that mean that God is deliberately choosing some people to be destroyed? And to be fair, there are some Christians who do believe that. We call it double predestination. Uh, if God chooses people to be saved, they say, that means he chooses them to be condemned as well. But that's not exactly what the Bible says. And even in this passage here, you get a hint that that's not the case. It's the passage in Greek, well, the, the English translation underneath it. And you see that it talks, first of all, about the vessels of wrath having been fitted for destruction. And the word that's used there... And the passive tense of it, and the way that the whole thing is put together, implies they have done this to themselves. They have deliberately chosen, the other side of the antinomy, they have deliberately chosen to be under the wrath of God. They've turned their back on him. They've said we're having nothing to do with God. It's our life, not his. We want to live it the way that we want to live. We don't want to be in subjection to anybody, even if he created us. And they have put themselves in that position. On the other hand, when it talks about the other, other people, the people whom God prepared beforehand for glory, it's not passive, it's active. It's something that God has deliberately done. And it's that God has taken these people and said, whoa, you are going to decide for me, are you? That's fantastic. You're going to choose my glory. Right, let's get you ready for heaven. And he works in them in a quite different way. And so it's not that God wants anybody to be condemned. It's not that he looked at the human race and said, right, so who shall we send to hell? Okay, you and you and you and you. No, it's not that. It's not like that at all. God wants everybody to come back to himself. That's one side of the antinomy. <laughs> it's free and it's open to everybody. But the other side of it is he knows that someone's up right from the word go. And that being the case, um, they have put themselves in that position. So right at the end of the whole thing, uh, Paul uh, has something to say. And this is verse 30 onwards. Let me just read those verses and say one thing about them and we're done. What then shall we say, he says, that the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is faith. But Israel, who pursued a, a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were, by works. They tried to get there by themselves. They tried to become good enough to earn God's favor. And you can't do that. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. 
as, as it is written. And here's his last quotation in the chapter. And this quotation combines two passages from the book of Isaiah. See, I lay in Zion the stone that causes men to stumble and the rock that rocks and fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. He's talking about two passages in Isaiah which talk about a foundation stone. God has put a foundation stone, he says, in Israel. And it's a foundation stone over which, he says in another passage, some people are going to stumble. So he's saying two things at the same time. Isaiah 14 says, God lays in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble. Lots of people look at Jesus and say, I can't believe that. I don't want to believe that. I don't want to surrender my independence and follow some God somewhere. I don't want somebody to come into my life who's going to change it because I'm perfectly comfortable the way I am. And Jesus becomes a stumbling block to them. But Isaiah, um, hang on a minute, I've got the wrong one there. Oh, it's, 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 it's knocked out the chapter, but um, I, Isaiah 26, 18 says, this is also a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. And that verse ends, because it's secure, because it's a cornerstone that cannot be moved, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So what he's saying is you decide. Either it becomes a stone over which you fall and trip and bruise your shins, or else it becomes the cornerstone on which you build your life. And that cornerstone is Jesus Christ. Just finish with a, a, a story that's a little bit easier to understand than a lot of what we talked about this morning. I just came across it uh, the other day. I was clearing things out for this onslaught of relatives that we've had this week. My, my office had to be, you know, cleaned and dusted and papered. And all. <laughs> Happens once every 500 years. But anyhow, uh, I found in there some, some documents about this guy, William Corrigan. And he was somebody who lived in North Devon in the 19th century. And uh, in fact, his relatives are still around. Derek Corrin, who is uh, uh, one of the leaders of the church in West Down, West Down Gospel Hall in Mid-Devon, is one of his, his relatives. And Mr. Corrin was somebody who was an agricultural laborer himself. But God touched him, his life, and called him to be an evangelist, a bit like Stevie Walker, I guess. And he just went everywhere telling people about Jesus. And there's a story uh, in uh, the, the memories that people have of a young man who was ill and in great trouble about his soul. And the parson and the doctor went to see him and agreed that he must be sent to the asylum because he must be mentally ill. Our brother Corin, being earnestly requested by the young man's mother to come and see her son, visited him. Taking him by the hand, he quietly asked, how are you? The young man replied, I am not well, but that is not the worst of it. I am a lost man. Mr. Corrin said, I am glad to hear you say that. The man seemed to fall back in amazement. And the visitor went on to say, I was once like you. Never in your life was the astonished reply. Yes, I was once in such trouble about my soul that I had to leave my work in the field and kneel down under the hedge and cry to God to save me. The young man then rose, clasped his hands together and cried out, God of heaven, save me a poor sinner for thy name's sake. He was then asked, what do you want? He replied, Way to be saved, don't I? Yes, was the reply. I believe you do. And how are you to know when you will be saved? I better not try and do a Devon accent. But, but yeah. how are you to know when you're, to, you're saved? That, said he, is what I want to know. A testament was then opened. And Romans 10, 13 was read to him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whereupon he asked, is that there? The book was handed to him. And he read it slowly himself, asking his mother, is it in our Bible? Their own book was then handed to him and he read it there. He then exclaimed, I'm a saved man. Thank God, I'm a saved man. 
Some days after, a miller from that same neighborhood called at the house of her brother Corin's sister for orders. On being asked if he'd heard how the young man was at the place, the village concerned, he replied, Oh, bless you, missus. See, there's a man up here about. I can't do this in, in standard English. There's a man up here about by the name of Corin who wanted to see him and made a perfect cure of him. And that's why going from I'm a lost man to I'm a saved man. Yes, God has chosen those who are to be saved. And so if you are a Christian, you are eternally secure. Your name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Pressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, you to the end shall, ensure, uh, shall endure, as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but not more secure, the souls of the righteous in heaven. Isn't that great? You're safe because God chooses, but you still have the responsibility of choosing for yourself. What happened to that guy whom you were going to commit to the asylum? was simply that he made a choice that transformed his life. And if you've ever done that, and you want to do it, come and talk to somebody this morning. Anyway, I've gone on long enough. Let's pray for a moment and then hand back to Stevie. Let's pray together. So, Heavenly Father, thank you that in your word there are things that are difficult, but they're worth wrestling with. Because when we get to the bottom of them, we understand you, and we understand our position in the universe an awful lot more clearly. Thank you that you chose us in Jesus before the thing began. But we know that's true because we choose you. And you're not unjust. And your plan is not unfair. And we can't understand it, but we can see that it's working out. It's not failed. You are no heroic failure, our God. But you are choosing from every land and every nation those who are forming a mighty army, a multitude that no man can number, many as the stars in the heaven, as many as the grains of sand on the seashore. And they all belong to you, and you love them with an everlasting love. Father, help us to have the grace to secure our place in that multitude, if we haven't yet, so that we're sure we belong to you, and your plan involves us too. We ask it for your namesake.